Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in just nine days from now, our country will be inaugurating a new president. For some, this has been a very, very long wait. For others, this begins a time of fear and unknown. Lots of preparations have been happening for this inauguration. People are coming from all corners of the world to Washington, D.C. I have a friend who lives in D.C., and she told me that her homes are being rented out, even just for one night, for thousands and thousands of dollars for people to stay there. I also heard from somebody else who is planning on being there that the public transportation is expected to be so packed that people are discouraged from taking it and, in fact, are encouraged to walk miles and miles and miles into the city to be a part of this event. Security is at its highest that it has ever been for a presidential inauguration. Police forces from surrounding states are being shipped in to help with the extra personnel needed in D.C. It will be a huge day, whether you're excited about it or not. Planning for such events, such events such as a presidential inauguration, goes on for months and even years ahead of time. And everyone planning for the event, regardless of who the president will be, looks ahead to January 20th, knowing that whoever the president is, this would be the day that he or she will take office. And it will be a day of fanfare, of work, and a day of lots of planning. Now, there is something to the planning of such an event that is attractive to people like me. The high J's on the Myers-Briggs, the one who every single day prepares a checklist of things to do today, and every Sunday night prepares a checklist of things to do this week, and the anticipation, the countdown of the days, and sometimes even the hours, making sure that everything is in place, and the planning, even for the unexpected, is taken care of. You see, planning ahead is something I really enjoy doing. So when I read about John the Baptist, when I think about John and his ministry, I wonder what it would like to be planning for someone for a big event of an entry of another person and an inauguration of the Messiah, and yet not know exactly all the details, not know exactly when it will happen, not exactly knowing how it will happen, not exactly even knowing exactly to whom it will happen. You know, I think John had an incredible amount of faith. If nothing else, he had a clear sense of call, a clear assurance of what he was called to do. I'm amazed at John's faith. You know, here was this oddball. This guy who wore camel hair clothes. And, you know, at first I gave him the benefit of the doubt. At first I thought, well, maybe that was, like, common. But I did a little research. No, it was not common. People did not wear camel hair clothes even then. John was unique. 
And I don't think, in fact, I know that most people do not eat locusts on a regular, on a regular diet. Honey, maybe, to sweeten up the locust. And most people do not live in the desert for long periods of time, although there were some. And yet, as odd as this man was, people were drawn to him. It's one of the things that we so quickly can miss in reading the Gospel of Mark, the short bit about John the Baptist that we read in chapter 1. It says that, that people were coming from all over the Judean countryside, and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. See, John didn't even have to come in. People were hearing about him. The buzz was so great. The excitement was so huge for John that people were willing to make the trek to go see the camel hair eating locust guy. So he had to be saying something that was attractive. He had a charisma that I imagine just drew people to him that allowed them to... Look beyond the camel-haired clothing. For all of their lives, the Jews had been looking and waiting for a Messiah. It's a huge theme in the Old Testament, this looking ahead, this looking for. And even though the Gentiles, who hadn't been brought up with this, were drawn to John, his charisma, his charismatic way of speaking must have been amazing to pull people in, one that would cause them to walk for miles and miles and miles because the public transportation wasn't available. They would get on their donkeys or whatever, and then they would be baptized by him. When John baptized people, it wasn't the baptism in the same way that we know it. Yes, there was water involved, definitely. But the baptism that John gave to people was a representation of a reorientation of someone's life. It was not a purification rite, a washing away, but it was an establishment that these people are now committed to a new way of life. And that commitment was a new way of life of preparation for the Messiah. It's different than how we baptize today. John baptized with water and made no mention of a spiritual dimension to the baptisms in the same way that we talk about the spiritual dimension of the Holy Spirit. This was a washing that was representing the washing away of old sins and the preparation for the Messiah. It was a commitment to staying focused on the Messiah. John never intended his baptism to be repeated, not that baptism, not the baptism of water, nor did he see it as an establishment of righteousness that could never be lost. He knew that people might mess up, but he hoped instead that these baptisms were a way to help people prepare for what was coming. And prepare for what? In a way, the unknown You see, John spoke constantly of the need for repentance. John believed that the Messiah would come with such an angry sense of determination to call the people to repentance that the Messiah would actually be a judge, a kind of person who would slay the wicked and take away the pain, but to judge very firmly and strongly. John didn't talk or even imagine a Messiah that would heal the sick or that would care compassionately for those on the outside. 
If you think about it, John's image of a Messiah was quite different than what we experienced in Jesus. In the book Starlight, beholding the Christmas miracle all year long, John Shea spent a whole chapter writing a beautiful poem about John the Baptist. I was touched in new ways as I read this poem this week, and so throughout the sermon, I'm going to read you small excerpts. I won't read you the whole chapter. I will read you small excerpts of John Shea's poem that is entitled, The Man Who Was a Lamp. There is another pointer of the way, a map of a man, who when you try to read him, reads you. Unexpected angels are pussycats next to this lion, a roar that once overrode Judea. You may not heed, but you will hear his insistent, intruding, unsoothing voice. Some say this thunder is because his father stumbled mute from the Holy of Holies, tongue-tied by an angel who was peeved by the old man's stubborn allegiance to biological laws. The priest was silenced in the temple because he thought flesh could not stop God, could stop God. The son of the priest shouted in the wilderness because he feared God would stop flesh. His open mouth was an open warning. His name is John, a, ma- a man who was a lamp. At least that is what Jesus said, a burning and shining lamp. The implication is clear. The lamp is a torch through the darkness to find the light of the world. As the lamp comes closer to the light, its radiance is overwhelmed. It is in the presence of a stronger shining. It decreases as the light increases. Yet there is no comparison. The child cannot be found by competition. The lamp and the light meet in the mystery of communion. The two become one while remaining two. Follow John and find Jesus. Find Jesus and find the fullness of John. Beyond John's call to repentance, John knew very little about what this Messiah was about. He was following his own internal call, his call from God to do this work, to prepare the way for the one he does not know. Perhaps the call even came to him in in his mother's womb when he leapt when Mary showed up at the door of Elizabeth. The call that said, you are the one, John, to go ahead and to prepare my people for the one who is coming behind you. But who is that one, John may have asked, and how will we know when he or she has arrived? Again, from John Shea's poem. But John is not so easy to follow. He is no toady. He lacks servility and does not work for pay. In truth, he is more guardian than guide, more dragon at the gate than porter at the door, more fire on the earth than lamp on a stand, opposite of the sought-after child in every way. The child is round. This one has edges. The child nurses on virgin's milk. This one crunches locusts. The child is wrapped in swaddling clothes. This one is rubbed raw by camel hair. Yet they know one another, even exchange smiles. They share a mystery 
this hairy man and smooth child. Jesus came out of John as surely as he came out of Mary. John was the desert soil in which the flower of Jesus grew. John was the voice in the wilderness who taught Jesus to hear the voice from the sky. John would push sinners beneath the water, and Jesus would resurrect them on the waves. John was the fast who prepared for Jesus the feast. No man has ever less a shepherd than John, yet loved by one. If you are surprised that Jesus came from John, imagine John's prophetic puzzle. When the predicted wrath to come came and he said, let's eat. John expected an axe to the root of the tree, and instead he found a gardener hoeing around it. He dreamt of a man with a winnowing fan and a fire, and along came a singing seed scatterer. He welcomed wrathful verdicts, then found a bridegroom on the bench. When John said, there is one among you whom you do not know, he spoke from experience. John's purpose, you see, was to be this living signpost, pointing the way to a Messiah, but a Messiah he did not know. But yet, through it all, what was happening was that the people kept thinking that John maybe was the Messiah. That wasn't his purpose. And John was distraught about that. He had to quickly deter the thinking. In verse 7, he even says, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. Don't worry about me. John's life would have been a total failure if people had merely stood admiring him as the directional sign, but going no further. No, everything about John's life had to, and in fact did, say, on to Jesus. Look to him. Again from John Shea. John's desert is the place between slavery and promise. Out of Egypt, but not yet in the waters of the Jordan. Your sojourn there will burn away. The last marks of the shackles and you will stand unfettered. You will be between the castle and the crowd, between fine garments and reeds shaken by the wind. You will not lord it over others and you will not be pushed around. Prophet? Yes, and more. But in the thrill of freedom... It will take you a moment to notice what the more is. In the emptiness of John's desert, you will find yourself waiting, like a bowl that waits for wine, like a flute that waits for breath, like a sentinel that waits for the dawn. You are a highway ready for traffic, and here comes one who seems also to have been waiting, waiting for the construction to be complete. The more is arriving, and there is only one question. Are you the one who is to come? God does not come to a people who are unprepared. John's role was incredibly important in recognizing this. John was called to help prepare his people for the Messiah. And what John did was appropriate. John called them to repent and to forgiveness and even to baptism as a representation of this reform. 
Sometimes we think that the way to live out this repentance and demonstrate our own reformation is to create what we call the way of the Lord, as John would say it. And this way of the Lord is, in fact, working with our own obedience to the ethical vision of Christianity. What happens, though, when we rely solely on that is that we miss one important element of Mark's story. Jesus hasn't done, as Sheldon reminded us, anything before the baptism, especially according to the Gospel of Mark. The first time we encounter Jesus is when Jesus walks towards the River Jordan and comes for baptism. There is no sign of his birth. There is no sign of his childhood, even in the temple at age 12. The first time we experience Jesus is this. Jesus hadn't done a thing before he was baptized. Not a word, not a sermon, not a healing, not a disciple called, nothing. He merely walked towards God and offered himself to God as a symbol of his commitment of his faith. When we feel like we need to prepare the way of the Lord ourselves, when we feel like we need to be the one to prepare so that we are okay with God, so that we can finally get it right with God, so that we can finally present ourselves to God, we leave out the important element of divine grace, which is an important message that rides through all of the Gospels. All throughout the Bible, people were desiring to follow God, but they relied on the divine grace to guide them. Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to feed their starving families during famine, and God offered them the divine grace through their unexpected encounter with their brother, Joseph. When the Israelites were fleeing from Egypt, God provided divine grace at the Red Sea. In the Exodus, as the Israelites were walking for miles and miles and days and months and years through the wilderness, God offered them pillars of fire and a cloud to guide themselves. And God guided Noah with a dove and a rainbow. The images of hope and promise and renewal remind us that human obedience and walking in the way of God's word is a proper response to God's grace. We don't need to create the path with the obedient works. It's already done for us. That's what John came to do. And we see it over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God prepares the path for us. We just have to show up. And now with John, we see it. God has prepared a path for us to follow, one that will lead us to God through God's Son, the Messiah. And when we step out on that path like Jesus, without knowing what lies ahead, just as Jesus didn't know what was ahead for him, without making any huge solemn vows at that moment, except the one most important thing, to accept the willingness to be loved by God and to be cherished in that love. God is there waiting for each of us to say, you are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. God doesn't love us because of what we do to earn that love. God loves us from the very beginning, just like Jesus. God loves us from the very beginning and our actions that follow 
are our responses to that love, returning the love that God expresses to us from the very beginning. We don't need to build a highway and then wait for God to show up. God is already there, wanting and waiting to draw us closer, even before we repent, if that is possible. Sometimes we just need to follow the signs that are already present and to offer ourselves as willing. From John Shea. The cave of Christmas is hidden in the center of the earth. You will need a lamp for the journey. A man named John is a step ahead of you. His torch sweeps the ground so that you do not stumble. He brings you at your own pace to the entrance of the cave. His smile is complete, perfect, whole, lacking nothing. Inside there is a sudden light, but it does not hurt your eyes. The darkness has been pushed back by radiance. You feel like an underwater swimmer who has just broken the surface of the Jordan and is breathing in the sky. John is gone. Notice from whom the light is shining, beloved child. Amen.